0: Hey everybody, I'm just going to hop in here real quick to say that we are extending our Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes giveaway another week. Uh, We threw that in at the end of our last episode after things had kind of wrapped up and not a lot of people saw it. I also did not provide the handles for where you could find us at. So, if you go to A Bite of D&D on Facebook or Twitter, reply to any of those threads tweets whatever with your favorite monster from the game to either run or encounter with maybe a reason why uh, doesn't have to you'll be entered in to win a copy of Tome of Foes you do not have to follow you don't have to subscribe anything like that but we will get you entered in and we will extend that out one more week so have a good one thank you for listening and we will see you next week
1: Hey guys, welcome back to A Bite of D&D, the podcast that brings flavor to your games and campaigns. My name is Zach, and sitting across the internet is my co-host, Micah. How's it going, guys? And today, we're going to go back into uh, Mordenkainen's Tome of Foes and talk to you about the Shadar Kai, which are new to me, uh, maybe not new to some of you listeners out there, but Micah... Give give us a recap on what the Shadarkai are.
0: So the Shadarkai are kind of elves in service to the Raven Queen. They've spent so much time within the Shadowfell that kind of their emotions and stuff have kind of been sapped away. They're, they're husks of them their former selves. And within the Shadowfell themselves, they, they look Like those husks. I mean, they're essentially just emaciated walking corpses and are are pretty gross. Now, when they come to the material plane, they're kind of disguised a little bit more in that their flesh returns. Mm -hmm. They look maybe just like a very pale elf. In fact, there's a lot of parallels aside from these guys are very pale skin and the drow have very dark skin. Honestly, a lot of their design elements are fairly similar in my mind, which we'll kind of get into later as we talk about how you can adjust these guys. But the Shadarchai come from the Shadowfell, serve the Raven Queen, and they can be used as assassins for her or how the book describes it in that they're just trying to gain her favor and do things that they think she would approve of. So they just kind of wreck Havik in ways that they think she would appreciate. Not so much that they always have a goal in mind, but they're trying to get her attention and get her approval in the things that they do.
1: Yeah, so I I tend to think of them, like you said, as discount drow, but at least from my, my bit of reading that I've done on them, but but the, I guess the thing that pulls me slightly away from that is that, at least in the book, for the monster, these are neutral creatures so running even though they're from the Shadowfell, running them as an evil monstrosity is probably not fully the way to go with them like you said it's more about spreading the raven queen's whims than it is about some evil mastermind plan or just demonic chaos one
0: well, another way you could look at these guys is by serving the raven queen they're essentially serving death yeah. Like the the Raven Queen detests the undead. When things die it should be permanent. I mean they're they're basically just serving Lady Death in a way. And Death ultimately claims everyone. They're not evil, they're not good, they just are. And their goals are to do what they think she would want done.
1: So do you want to get into a little bit? There's three different templates for three different types of Shadow Kai warrior in this book. Do you want to go into those and then maybe try to reflavor it a little bit if we want to at the end?
0: Yeah. So part of the reason we're doing this, just a, a quick aside, is that a couple of these guys were featured fairly prominently in some of the adventures that Zach and I ran for Gen Con. And we thought they were pretty cool, so we figured we would do kind of an episode on them and kind of delve a little bit deeper into
1: how they can be used in your games. Let's start with the lowest CR of them and work our way up.
0: Yeah, so the lowest one of these guys I believe is actually the Shadow Dancer, which for me, uh, even though the others definitely have more abilities and stuff they can play with, the Shadow Dancer was my favorite probably just because I got to use it a little bit more than the others. But Shadow Dancers are described as being like fighting living darkness. So these guys are very agile fighters. They can blink around in the shadows. They have a shadow step ability. And the thing that makes them cool is their weapon. They have this really cool spiked chain. And what it does is it it does modest damage on its own and honestly against a lot of players you're not going to get a whole lot of extra use out of this but it gets three attacks so you've got several chances to get it off and on a failed dexterity save they can do one of three different things to your players they can either grapple them if they're medium or smaller kind of hold them back for their other allies to get on or maybe just try and hold a big bruiser away from getting any closer in they can knock you prone and give the rest of the group advantage on the follow-up attacks uh, or they can just do a bunch of extra damage in the form of 4d10 necrotic damage so other than that they don't really have a whole lot else they've got a couple condition immunities for being elves And from coming from the Shadowfell, they have Resistance, Necrotic, but just a pretty straightforward kind of cool CR7 creature that you can toss in there.
1: Yeah, I like them, I think, because they're simple. They don't have any spells really to get in the way of. They don't have a ton of abilities. It's really their chain, and so they're easy to run. And you could still have a caster in the fight and not feel like you're overwhelmed as a DM with having to keep track of several different things. And the thing that to keep in mind is that they do get three attacks. And so while their chain by itself isn't super potent in damage, a, a person having to make three deck saves in a round, even if they are a, a rogue, if this thing hits you three times and you have to make three deck saves, There's a chance that you're not going to make one of those. And then, boom, you're hit with 22 necrotic damage or you're restrained or whatever. I mean, like, I think that's the thing is, like, one out of three isn't very good odds for the player. Like, you're going to get hit more often than not with something. At least that was my experience. Um, So to me, it's like, okay, as a DM, it's simple, but it adds something in that every time I had a Shadow Dancer's turn come around... I had players that got worried because they didn't know what was coming and they knew that it was going to be a very tough turn for them to get through unscathed.
0: Well, and these guys were especially fun because they were sprinkled in with just a bunch of like orcs. And so the orcs go down super fast and then these guys get their turn and every single group I ran, they were like, oh, shit. Like it was just a cool moment and ultimately everyone handled them very well but after just carving through a few dudes and then coming up with these I got a good reaction out of everybody and it was just a fun little surprise that was mixed in with everything
1: well and because they're simple you can easily downgrade or upgrade these guys to a different CR mm-hmm. like if if you if you want a little bit of a tougher fight just um increase their hit points by a little bit and increase the save DC on their on their chain and you're good to go if you want a little bit easier you could bring them down to maybe like a cr5 or 6 by decreasing their hit points and dropping that dc from 14 down to 12 i mean that would be a that would still be a really rough encounter but i think these guys have a lot of flexibility within most tier 2 fights they can be they can be a challenge
0: no i would agree so these guys a lot of fun i liked them the next up I believe is actually going to be the Gloom Weaver. Yeah. So in many ways, this is basically just an upgraded version of your Shadow Dancer. It has a spear instead of a chain that it makes two attacks with, but as part of its multi-attack, it's a fairly unique monster in that it can attack twice and cast a spell that takes one action to cast yeah which is pretty sweet the spear is very similar to the chain in that it doesn't do crazy damage just on its own but this one does not give you a deck save to avoid its necrotic damage and its necrotic damage has been upgraded from 4010 to 4012 mm-hmm. so very solid chance to hit with this thing and it just puts out damage and not only that you don't have to sacrifice those really meaty spear attacks To also cast a spell and cause some issues there. And while it doesn't have necessarily a ton of crazy spells. It has several pretty good ones. That I think could cause some issues for your party. Armor of Agathis is pretty good. Temporary hit points. When it gets struck they take automatic cold damage. Darkness can give it some cover. It's got invisibility. But probably my favorite. I really like Hypnotic Pattern.
1: Or or vampiric touch. I mean, if you're getting to do two attacks and then you do a vampiric touch, do a little bit more damage and get to heal up some. Like that's a ton of uh, positivity for them and around.
0: Yep. So and then it also has several tools to help avoid having to stick around in a just all-out brawl. So while it loses the shadow step that the shadow dancer had, it does have misty escape built in as a reaction. So when it takes damage, it can turn invisible and teleport up to 60 feet away and then remains invisible until the start of its next turn. So again, allows it to kind of dash in and out of the fight and pick off key targets without having to always dash through the front line that your players put up.
1: Now, another cool ability that it has that I really like, which is kind of its hallmark ability, it makes it a little unique, is the Burden of Time, which... Is interesting in that I mean it's it's pretty close. It's all enemies within ten feet, but um, all enemies within ten feet of it have disadvantage on all saving throws, which I think is a cool ability. And especially if you are coupling it with other monsters like the Shadow Dancer. I mean, if you got two Shadow Dancers standing next to a Gloom Weaver that your party has to get through, you are in trouble.
0: You've got six attacks with disadvantage on every single one. On that deck save, you try to dash past them. They take an attack of opportunity. They knock you prone on that. You don't go anywhere. They grapple you. You don't go anywhere on that. I mean, they've got a lot of fun tools to kind of. There's a lot of synergy between these three, uh, Shadarkai in the book.
1: Yeah, so i I think that Gloomweaver is interesting. I think that it becomes deadly when you pair it with a couple of sidekicks either shadow dancers or anything else that's going to have consistent ability that requires a a saving throw like i think some spiders don't spiders have a lot of like con saves and things like that Uh,
0: yeah there's quite a few spiders that do the phase spiders in that adventure that some of those adventures that we ran as well they've got a pretty nasty poison on them yeah absolutely and again well we'll get into that in a second but these guys could easily be reskinned as another elf speaking of those spiders so the final one is the Soulmonger, and once again, there's a lot of really good synergy here uh, when mixing it with the other Shid archive. The one thing of note, and while Psychic isn't a super common damage type for your players to throw about, I like that they added in immunity from Psychic damage for the Soulmonger. Just kind of ties in with that soul aspect with them a little bit. Again, these guys, fairly similar with their weapon attacks. They get two weapon attacks. And again, it's automatic uh, necrotic damage on that hit with a little bit meatier punch on the dagger itself. It's a 4d4 dagger with 3d12 on the necrotic. But the really cool one in my mind, because it's an ability that can recharge, is its wave of weariness. So again, you pair one of these with a gloom weaver and suddenly it's not so good a time. It's a 60 foot cube. And each creature has to make a DC 16 constitution save, or they'll take 10d8 psychic damage and suffer one level of exhaustion. Now on a successful save, they take half damage, no exhaustion, but exhaustion can stack up more than players, at least the players I've had, really give it credit for. And if you get a couple layers of exhaustion on there, or your barbarian goes into a frenzied rage and manages to get dropped out of it due to one of these other guys' effect, it doesn't take damage, or uh, it just can't get in for an attack, and then it takes another because it's rage dropped off, that definitely starts impacting your players pretty quickly. Again, just make the rest of these encounters that much more difficult.
1: And it has two more abilities that I think both are unique and interesting. I think that the Soulmonger does suffer a little bit from the high CR in that you have a lot of things to juggle, but it has... An ability called Weight of the Ages that lets it... Any any creature that starts its turn within 5 feet has its speed reduced by 20 feet until the start of its the creature's next turn. So for a whole turn, they're going to be moving at basically around 10 feet around, which is nothing. Which I think is interesting. But then the big one is Soul Thirst, which is every time, they, every time the Soulmonger drops a character, they get half their hit points back. And half their hit points is 61 hit points.
0: So... How I read that was the Soulmonger gains half of the creature's hit points that they dropped.
1: That's probably the more fair read on that. Either
0: way, that's still pretty strong when you're down a player, plus they just got boosted, plus if they're with anything else.
1: Well, and let's say you, you're you fighting a level 9 party here. You're fighting a level 9 party What the average, let's say they get 7 hit points per level. That's 56 hit points. They're still going to regain like... 28 hit points pretty easily at least by dropping someone well and let me throw something else out there you've got a party that likes to try
0: and uh, power game a little bit play efficiently they let each other drop to zero intentionally because you can bonus action power would heal someone up at range and then they've got another action afterwards you bring them up with eight hit points that's cool they take another hit they're pretty much guaranteed to go down and it's going to once again heal up half their maximum hit points. There's no cooldown, there's no limit per rest or anything on this ability. So if you're trying to panic heal your team members up, and they get another round to go at them, they can just keep that healing going. Now maybe as a DM you'll rule that once they've maybe absorbed that life energy out of someone when they drop, it's not something that they can do again.
1: But mechanically that could be pretty brutal if things start going south for your players and i i would keep in mind that these are elves so they are i mean their intelligence is 19 so i think that they know what they can do again i think you can give excuses if if it feels like it's getting out of hand but um these these things know what they can do and they'll they'll go after it now the other thing the other the second part of the soul thirst is once they get those hit points now until they those hit points are gone they get advantage on all their attack rolls. So we talk about the death spiral and certain things like w- when you're fighting shadows at early levels and whatnot. I think that this thing can easily start a death spiral yeah, for a If party. it gets
0: someone low and it just can constantly keep rehealing off of them. And plus keeping advantage. advantage on their attacks. Yeah. I mean this guy could get nasty. Plus it gets – once a day, it is a spellcaster as well. Now, it doesn't get the cool thing where it can attack twice and then cast one of its spells, but it has multiple very solid spells that it can do uh, once a day. It's got Bestow Curse, uh, which, eh, it's all right. Chain Lightning, which can put a decent amount of hurt on early on in the fight against your group. Finger of Death, which is a pretty solid one. Gaseous Form if it needs to make a quick escape. I like to think of that more as like a... Soul form and yeah. kind of turns into spiritual energy, not so much just a gas. Um, phantasmal killer and seeming. So it's got some pretty solid spells mixed in there as well that it can soften a group up with before it engages and is fully committed.
1: So one thing that I'm going to run into I know with these guys is that in your average game, you got your wood elves, you've got your high elves, you got your drow, you got your eladrin you're running out of slots to put another type of elf in your world, maybe like, and, and maybe, maybe you're running forgotten realms and that's fine. And that's great. And then you have a perfect, like, Oh, they're from the Shadowfell. but even still then there, it becomes an issue of how do I make all these elves feel different? So maybe you don't want to have the Shadar Kai in there as a new race of elves. What can we do or what can we salvage from these guys? to make them more accessible to a more general D&D conglomerate?
0: Well, we've already hinted at it multiple times. Uh, I think they're already flavored well enough, and they kind of already have that look a little bit and how they're bedecked as far as their weaponry and stuff. You could easily convert these into a new type of drow. So there's already a lot of really good drow stat blocks in uh, Tome of Foes. Uh, You could easily add these three in as additional types of drow that your party could face down in the underdark you pair a gloom weaver with a pack of spiders and suddenly that poison damage is a lot more terrifying you change the necrotic to poison and it fits in really well they're they already hit that and you change very minimal things and suddenly you've got drow instead of shed archai
1: yeah and i think also they they have spells like blight and i'm i'm running out of examples already but they have several they have several spells that i think work well maybe with like an an evil clan or a dark clan of wood elves i think and their fusion would work really well
0: instead of going for some of the darker stuff you go with the more mind
1: uh yeah hypnotic pattern things like that mm -hmm. and and then if you went that way then their spike chain becomes a thorned whip sort of a item and i think i think that could be fun and it what it, what I like is that these are templates that you can put on just about, I think it'd be harder to put them on a high elf, but you could put these on just about any type of elf and give yourself three good options for a high CR combatant.
0: Mm-hmm. The the other, kind of in a different direction that I kind of liked was, and I think it's because of the model I wound up using when I ran these sessions, I didn't have uh, Shadar Kai. I had some, like... I it might've been Drow. It was some sort of dark elf type model that I used, but I was holding a whip. And I kind of liked the idea of, you could take, say, the spike chain ability from the Shadow Dancer and put it on a succubus or an incubus type creature because it kind of fits in with the whole dominatrix style demon fiend. I forget what they, they're actually categorized in this, but you could throw that weapon on them, give them the multi-attack ability off of that, And suddenly it's a slightly more difficult, a slightly more unique take on that one creature. And you could easily apply some of this to any of the other creatures you run. But that in particular stuck out to me that I think would be kind of a cool way to bring some of the aspects of one of these into another established creature that maybe you're already using in your game.
1: Yeah, I think all of their special abilities, whether it's the slow ability, I mean, I think some of those things can be excellent for a wizard or a necromancer. Just, you know, if you have a big baddie or a regional big baddie that you want to give some special attributes, you could give him the ability that anybody within 10 feet uh, has to make a save or is slowed down or has disadvantage on saving throws or whatever. And I think that's going to flavor well. Well, it'll um, also be
0: kind of a cool way. To maybe make his minions more impactful. So, say you're fighting a necromancer and he has a horde of skeletons. Well, they've just got this wave of just nauseous filth rolling off of them, and as it comes forward, you begin gagging and retching, and it makes it hard to see because your eyes are watering, and you slow down twenty feet to get through. Something like that. I mean, you could put some of these abilities on anything and come up with way for. A way for it to make it work. I just like that all three of them have very interesting I felt mechanics attached to them that I don't see
1: on many other monsters quite as much. And we've said that several times now in some of our reviews of monsters from Mordenkainen's and so I think what you can take away from all that is that they with Mordenkainen's if you delve into it you're not just getting an added bestiary and some other items, player options and whatnot, but I think you're getting another evolution of uh, mechanic thought within the game itself, and you're they're taking it to another level as far as how can we mix these rules around and find new combinations within the parameters that we've already established to make encounters more interesting. I think that the monsters and tomophoes added into encounters makes inherently is going to make those encounters, on the whole, more strategic more unique, and more difficult for the players. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up here because we are approaching a little bit
0: longer of an episode for us here. I believe next week we're going to be doing something a little bit different, something we haven't done before on this podcast, and I think we're going to be diving into an adventure that Zach ran as part of his campaign next week. He's going to kind of go over it from his takeaways for as a DM running it. I got to play in that and we're going to kind of go over what we thought was cool. Some of the ideas they incorporated that we liked and we'll see what you guys think about that.
1: Yeah, that's going to be a adventure from the DMs guild. So it's not something that I made up. It's something that maybe I added some stuff to or took some stuff away from. But the idea here is, and I don't think it'll be a super long episode at all, but I think that the idea there is going to be, we are about adding like we say at the beginning of every episode flavor to your games and campaigns and i think a great way that you can add that flavor is by getting on the dm skilled getting in touch with other content creators and allowing their creativity into your worlds and into the published modules that you're running and whatever whatever those types of things are i think that's a great way to add that flavor and and we're doing it at our home so we thought you know that could be a fun thing to talk about
0: if I could sound like the retail corporate shill that I am, all of us are smarter than one of us, and it is very much a community game. So we just thought there were some fun aspects there that we'll kind of dive into, and yeah. So it'll be a little bit different. We'll see what everyone thinks, and if we take a sudden nosedive after that, we'll know that maybe we will stay away from adventures on this particular podcast.
1: Yeah, if you absolutely hate what we bring to the table next week, let us know, and we'll shy away from it. We just think it might be a fun change of pace so
0: well that is all that we have for you guys this week thank you so much for tuning in and we will see you next time
1: later